Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Just One More Thing podcast. My name is Norgi. Thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, tonight's episode or today's episode, um, I have, uh, I'm interviewing a couple of folks from Just Live Incorporated, Just Live Inc., or Just Live, whatever you want to call it. Um, Just Live is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 2012, whose mission is focused on suicide prevention education, financial support to related supportive organizations, and emotional support to anyone affected by suicide, depression, and mental health, or I'm sorry, mental illness, so that others may just live more positively. Um, Before we get started, I just want to issue a trigger or sensitivity warning because this episode we're going to be talking quite openly about suicide, mental illness, and statistics related to those topics. So some of you may find this conversation extremely difficult to listen to um, as it will contain upsetting and perhaps graphic information regarding this topic. So please exercise extreme caution uh, if listening to this episode around others, especially children and those who may be sensitive to this topic. Um, Listener discretion is advised. So joining me for this episode um, are two members of Just Live, um, uh, Robert Stevens and Lily Carnes. Thank you for joining me uh, for this conversation. Um, Robert, I mentioned earlier um, that you and I have been um, trying to sort of get this on the books for almost a year and, um, you know, life happens. And so we haven't been able to to get it done. But um, uh, I'm thrilled that we're able to finally have this conversation because this is something that um, I feel needs to be talked about more. It's not talked about enough. And I hope that um, if nothing else, this this conversation will reach as many people as possible um, and encourage more people to talk about um, mental health and mental illness and suicide prevention because that stigma still exists and lots of people are afraid to talk about it. So um, so for both of you, if you wouldn't mind, it um, doesn't matter who goes first, introducing yourselves, um, telling us a little bit about yourselves and then what your roles are in uh, Just Live and sort of your um, uh, experience with the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Robert Stevens. I'm the president of Just Live. I've been in that role since I was fortunate enough to land it in January of 2020 before the entire world changed. Um, So it's been a rocky few years, but um, I'm really proud of the team that we've been able to put together and what we've been able to do uh, coming out of the shadow of COVID and how that's impacted mental health in the community. Uh, So a lot of what we do as an organization, we operate a lot like a foundation where we raise funds and awareness. We do a lot of advocacy and lobbying for programs that are beneficial to the community. Uh, We're essentially trying to fill that gap between what is provided by uh, government sustained money and funding and everything else. Uh, And that everything else, the more I've learned over the years, is a larger and larger chasm than a lot of people realize. Uh, So that's a lot of what we do, and we host a large music festival every year that is kind of our centennial event where we bring the community together to celebrate life and approach the subject of suicide and mental health in a way that's accessible, that invites families to enjoy uh, the activities that we have programmed to understand that we're not trying to put the emphasis on the difficult times, we're just trying to broach the subject and start that conversation. Yeah, so um, I'm Lily. Um, Again, thank you for having us. Um, I am a member of the board and have been for just over a year, a year and a half, I would say. Um, I got involved with Just Live about 
four years ago, I believe, uh, right before 2020. It was summer of 2019. Um, I was Miss Kenosha at the time, and they approached me. And if for all those who don't know, um, my initiative as Miss Kenosha was mental health awareness. Um, and I would go into schools, different events, talk about mental health, talk about my own mental health, um, just to get the conversation going and let everybody know that they're not alone. So I was approached by Just Live to um, speak at their Labor Love Music Festival, and that's how I got involved. Um, and ever since then, I've been, even before being on the board, I've been um, involved as much as I can each year with the festival, um, talking back and forth with Robert about different things that we can get together on. And then, yeah, about a year and a half ago, they asked me and my lovely mother um, to be on the board, and we've been doing it ever since. So your mom's on the board, too. She is, That's yes. Cool. Yeah, she, really cool. um, the first time I met everybody and the first Labor of Love Music Festival, it really, I struggled with my own mental health. I still do, and I have for a very long time. And when I brought my mom to the festival with me, I think it struck a chord with her in a good way. And it was just something that we both knew moving forward we wanted to be involved in is in whatever capacity they would have us. So, yeah. Now, um, you said, uh, Robert, that you became the president in 2020, correct? Um, were you involved with the organization in its inception? No. So I came on about 2017, 2018, and um, it was a very happenstance um, situation where I was leading a community choir and one of the members of Just Live attended a show and he really enjoyed the programming and actually approached me afterwards about maybe we did some type of performance in support of Just Live, something along those lines. And that just kind of organically grew until we did a few projects together with them. And then through that, I got to get to know the board and the founders and those involved in the organization. And I was blown away by, I've worked with a ton of nonprofits over the years, and there I had never experienced a board that was so functional and so passionate about their cause. And it really inspired me to be more interested and more involved. And then in 2019, they were hitting their 10-year reunion of the festival and they were achieving their keynote goals. So they had set out in 2009 to have this music festival with three goals in mind. The first was to sustain 10 years where they were an advocate for mental health and suicide prevention, um, doing that kind of work in the community. The second was to raise a million dollars. And the third was to have a band trampled by turtles headline. And the significance of that was the founder's daughter who um, they lost to suicide, her favorite band was Trampled by Turtles. So in 2019, they were able to realize those goals. They had actually surpassed a million dollars already prior to then. They were in their 10th year, and they landed Trampled um, miraculously for that festival. And they actually brought me in to help with the production of the festival because I had had experience in that end of things, and it was going to be a larger scale than they were used to. So I came in and got more involved from that and then based on my performance there was when they invited me to join the board in January of 2020. So understanding that you weren't involved from the ground floor of the inception of the organization, is there, can you offer us any kind of um, uh, history about how the um, organization got started? Because I know reading, you know, on the website that it sort of was born from 
tragedy. Um, and it flowered into this sort of really great concept to try to turn a negative into a positive. Absolutely. So essentially, it was um, a series of unfortunate events that was within the same community out there in that Burlington area where Kelly had lost her daughter and then other individuals in the same community uh, committed suicide that were networked in the same family and friends and it really polarized that community and brought some awareness to it and um, Kelly and her father they their family was really strong in the fundraising it was a strength of theirs and so they had the initial idea to do this one music festival and they would bring in different organizations and resources they would try to raise as much money as they could and make what impact they could to to make some meaning out of this and then through that process um, they just realized how powerful this event could be that it was a different way of looking at it it was a different way of gathering people it was a different way of having this conversation it was a different way of healing for an entire community and so when they realized that they had something there they continued to grow it and develop it and they took the right path they had the right passionate people they had the board like i said uh, they were like a family and they all um, most all of them had lost somebody uh, to suicide and so it really meant something to them and it was important and despite the grief they were going through they found a way to work together and build something that really transcended what their initial ideas were and really allowed them to connect with more and more people and make a more impactful statement on what suicide's impact is in our communities. So both of you being involved with the organization, I assume these are not paid positions. I mean, this is a nonprofit organization, so I assume that you have um, daytime jobs or go to school, whatever the case may be. So um, how do you find the time to devote as much time as you do um, to such a heavy cause um, because obviously this isn't something that just goes away because um, you have an organization that's dedicated to educating and stuff so um, how do you find the time especially with families or relationships or school or jobs and then also what are some of the difficulties you face um, on a day-to-day basis um, being involved with such a difficult um, sort of sect of life Yeah, um, I can speak first to uh, what you said about the organization. We pride ourselves on the fact that we're all 100% volunteers with no overhead, that everything that we bring in goes right back into the energy and into the resources in the community. So we're really proud of that, and that's what we expect of any of our partners that we donate money to and fundraise for, is that the maximum amount of impact in those dollars is reaching the communities that need it the most. Um, I think Lily can probably speak for herself first um, regarding how this works with her schooling and everything. Yeah, so um, I'm a full-time student, um, and it, like you said, this isn't a paid position. And obviously there's difficulties with anything that you go in, but it not being a paid position means that it's a passion position. Sure. And everybody's there because they want to be, not because they're depending on it for... Income. Income, or, or they think that they're getting something out of it other than the experience and knowing that the message that we're spreading is so important. Everybody's there because they want to be and being able to openly 
talk about mental health and, and bring awareness to it is something that's really special. And it's, it's a tough position to be in. There are hardships no matter where you are. But when something is so important to you, you make it work. I'm a full-time student, but this is really important to me, so I will make it work. Obviously, things happen and life happens, and everybody knows that we're all very flexible with each other and understanding of each other. Um, so it's, it's easier to work as a team, I would say, and, and that is what makes it possible is when everybody comes together because we know that not everybody is going to be accessible all the time. That's impossible. Sure. That's not, especially with the, with the message that we're pushing out, we know firsthand you can't expect the world of one person. And the only way things work out is if we all lend a helping hand to one another and put our best foot forward together as much as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, I mean, for myself and my role within the organization, one of the things that I learned a long time ago in my experience with nonprofits is that the biggest faltering with any nonprofit is discipline. Uh, it's at the root of the decision-making, the process, how you manage people, how you navigate the climate around whatever cause or, or whatever subject material you're working with. And um, having that discipline in place, it, it really makes it a lot easier for everybody because everybody understands their place in that. Everybody understands their role. You understand that you only need to meet those expectations that, you know, we can have grandiose ideas, but our decisions have to be based on the facts. They have to be based on impact and they have to be based on what's within your means. We always say that with every event that we do, if we do nothing other than reach one person, and change one person's life, then we've done our job because you can't put a price on a life. And so if we've impacted even one, then we've achieved our mission. And so for us, it's not about solving all the issues in the world. It's not about having all of the answers all the time. It's about making the impact we can with the time and effort we have available to us. Absolutely. Also going on to that too, um, Robert said that he just happened on Just Live. Sure. In a way, so did I. The first time I went to that music festival, they were pushing the same narrative that I was. The narrative that, again, even if we only reach one person, we've done our jobs. Sure. Starting the conversation, if anybody hears it, we've done our jobs. When I came into that, and my, the first time I came to the music festival, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I believe I was talking to you when I first came in, right? Yeah, okay. Um, going into that music festival, going into that day, I was not prepared for what I was gonna see and, and what was going on and the amount of love from the board and the people who are there just to support one another. It is more than reinforcing. And that moment will be reinforcing forever and ever and ever, even if people were just there to see the music, they came with one expectation and then they left with a whole new slew of information and resources. And it it's almost undescribable how much love you feel going into something like that. And with that feeling that I had that day, I never there will never be a time where I won't make time for it or I, I, I wouldn't 
want to make time for it just because I see the impact that it's made and I know the impact that it's made for me and somebody who again struggles with mental health and has for a long time this organization literally saved my life multiple times so I know what it can do for other people sure and I've seen what it can do for other people because it did it for me um, I want to dig into this just a little bit deeper, if 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 we uh, if you don't mind. So, um, in my line of work, one of the things that is talked about a lot, um, and probably in a lot of um, frontline work, um, like um, first responders and nurses and stuff like that, um, is that uh, we secondhand trauma um, being a thing because sometimes you are witness to or part of something that didn't happen to you directly, but because of the nature of the thing that you were exposed to, um, that secondhand trauma um, becomes a part of your life. So I guess my question to the two of you is that with all that you do to help others in this organization and to spread the word and to um, raise awareness, are you or do you have an outlet for yourselves in order to decompress? Because I have to imagine that, like anything, despite how hard you try, it's hard not to take this work home with you. I mean, you've heard of people, um, nurses, hospice nurses, doctors who um, absolutely um, get hysterical because they lost a patient or a long-term um, patient died. And you can understand why that would be upsetting to people. So, um you know, do you have an outlet for yourselves in order to sort of decompress and also to deal with some of the things that you're seeing on a daily basis? Yeah. Um, I see a therapist. I see a therapist very often. I have for many years. Um, I truly believe that if I didn't, um, and I wasn't practicing what I was preaching, that would be a bit hypocritical. I am the type of person I take people's feelings on pretty heavy, and I know that Robert does, and I know that everybody else on the board does, and that's what makes us so passionate about it. Um, but I see a therapist. I also, I guess we as a group too, we also find time to hang out with each other and, and just be with each other to celebrate what we have done sure. and acknowledge that, there is a lot of, although there is bad in things, there's, there's a lot of good in what we've done. And I think taking time for yourself and prioritizing yourself is the only way that you can continue to spread a message like this and, and talk to as many people as possible. Sure. How about you, Robert? Yeah, I can say, you know, for myself, uh, one of the things about this that can be cathartic is, you know, what, what we're doing is essentially what we're hoping to accomplish, which is more dialogue and more conversation. And so in and of itself, just us out there talking about these things, being open ourselves about our experiences, about our losses, is therapeutic in a way to us. So there's you know, definitely a, a benefit that we are reaping from putting this positive into the world. And so that is part of it. And you know, learning to navigate that and learning what to focus on, what not to focus on, what to let go of, what's within your control and only focusing on that. Um, you know, designating family time um, is a big part of it. You know, enriching your own life outside of it and reconnecting and being grounded in the reality that you exist. Um, those are all kind of essential things that you just do out of habit. Um, but I think that 
as we have gotten more into this world of mental health and suicide, you, you start to see in ways in families that you're talking to that are going through this and their grieving process. In a lot of ways, it brings some reality home to you and you, and you get an outside perspective that you don't necessarily get when you're in the moment, when you're dealing with the loss, when you're dealing with the struggle, when you're you know, having those late night thoughts. You get to see it from an outside lens and it gives you a little more perspective that benefits you in your personal life and, and how you look at your own decision making. Um, I, you mentioned earlier, um, Lily, that your mom is also on the board. Yeah. And, um, and that's really cool that you have, um, you know, it's a kind of like a family thing. Yeah. Um, do you believe that that has helped to sort of bring the two of you closer together and help solidify your relationship? Absolutely. Um, so for a while, I, I will say this very openly. I speak very openly about my mental health. When I was first started struggling, I was not very open to receiving help at all. And my mom, she tried her best to just be there for me and to do everything she, she could. And oftentimes I would push her away. When we came into Just Live, that had gotten better, obviously, over time. But especially when we came into Just Live, it she really put the effort in on her own, on her own to understand what I was going through and, and educate herself so much to the point where she was ready to join the board, not only for me, but for herself and a, and a lot of other people because she saw the way that it affected me and she saw how the people on the board and how Just Live in general affected me in such a positive way and knowing that she started doing this with me also because she didn't want me to be alone in it and she wanted to understand as much as she possibly could um it grew us really close she's my best friend she is awesome well shout out to your mom shout out to monica monica (laughs) um so this is where i wanted this this is going to get heavy now, um, a little bit more heavy um, perhaps than what we've talked about so far, because um, I want to talk about statistics. And um, in looking on the Just Live website and also um, doing some research, um, I want to ask you guys about some of these things and, and maybe um, you know unpack a lot of the, the, the stigma out there. So firstly, firstly, according to data from the CDC, Um, Suicide was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States in 2019. So over 47,000 Americans died by suicide, which is the highest suicide rate in over 15 years. Um, Can the two of you, in your expert opinions, maybe talk about what you think is the cause of this large uptick in suicides in the last um, couple of years or why it's at the peak that it's at in, in 15 years? Uh, well, I can say, well, first, I, I can update those numbers because the CDC just released their newest numbers uh, for 2022, and uh, we are at an all-time high. So suicide is the highest rate it's ever been in history. Um, it's impacting more and more communities. We're seeing a huge shift now that the baby boomer generation is struggling with this and they're having alarming increases in the rate of suicide because a lot of them are getting now to retirement age and realizing that they can't sustain 
with the money that they have, that there aren't the resources available to them that perhaps previous generations had had. So we are seeing more and more of that, unfortunately. Uh, it is a number of different factors. You know, some of the increase, uh, being completely transparent, is reporting. We're getting more and more cases reported than before because it's getting talked about more and more. And so as much of a taboo as it still is, as those things kind of loosen, families are coming forward more and more reporting, more accurate reporting is coming forward. They're actually starting to look at the difference between overdoses that are intentional and unintentional and how they classify those things. So some of it's reporting. Uh, Some of it is just the climate of what we went through with COVID. There was definitely an isolationist impact on individuals and our ability to relate and communicate with one another. We're seeing alarming um, reports coming out of schools and specifically in college age where the inability to communicate or or free thinking or um, the opportunity to have constructive criticism and how we perceive that uh, is a bigger struggle now for our youth because they're not as attached to face-to-face conversations and dialogue. And we are also seeing alarming information coming out uh, related to social media and the impact that that has and uh, a generation of, of scrolling and how that's impacting attention spans, how that's impacting our emotional state, how that's impacting our self-identity. Uh, so there are a number of factors about it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, if we had to put our finger on one reason that it continues to be an issue is conversation. It's still more and more difficult for families to have these conversations. They just don't do it. It's uncomfortable. It's easier to find ways around having the conversation to deal with if you know that your child's depressed or you know that a friend's depressed. Uh, It's easier to take them out and do something than it is to really sit down and, and have a conversation of why and discussing that. So, you know, as that is improving in some ways, and there's getting to be more transparency around it. We're unfortunately seeing more high-profile cases of suicide in the news, and that is bringing a little more attention to the conversation. But what's really important is that we start getting the support from our lawmakers to understand that this is more significant than just one thing, that mental health impacts every vein of society. It impacts why we have addiction issues. It impacts why we have behavioral issues in the schools. It impacts why we have people going into the industry or coming out of it. Right now, the rate that we are losing therapists is for every one that is entering the field, 13 are retiring. The last time anybody just in southeastern Wisconsin attempted to quantify the numbers of the impact of how many people in need was, I think, in 2015 when the local news did a story and their best guess, and again, we're all relying on the reporting of people, so we know a lot of it's going to go largely unreported, but their best guess was that there was only one provider for every 1,075 patients in need in Kenosha County alone. you You couldn't possibly see every patient in need and have the availability. 
And so where the lawmakers, where we really need their support, is in looking at the societal issues, understanding that we need more incentives for people to go in the field. They need to be better paid, better resourced. The insurance companies need to start supporting this just the same as they would if you went into the hospital for any other illness, that your insurance can cover you getting in and seeing somebody, that they start funding more clinics in the communities. We have partners that are doing outstanding jobs like Catholic charities that are constantly opening new clinics and making more availability and doing bilingual services to reach individuals that aren't reached in the normal system. But it's not enough for the gap fillers to fill that need. And that's why we need more support. We need more dialogue. We need more conversation about it because without that changing, there isn't any measurable means for us to get to a positive result. So to um, sort of pinpoint something that you were talking about before, and I want to ask you about this, um, uh, Lily, you mentioned that, uh, uh, Robert, that um, schools and college age um, kids where suicide is starting to um, sort of blow through the roof. Uh, You go to school full time, Lily, and also... um, you know, I imagine, I don't know how old you are, and I suppose it doesn't matter, but um, I'm sure that you're younger than me, especially because you were Miss Kenosha um, just a few years ago. And so you're, your generation, you're around, around a lot of younger people because that's mostly who g- gets into the um, Miss Kenosha pageant, but also going to school full time. What are you seeing in the schools that sort of speaks to what Robert was saying in terms of, um, you know, suicide and mental illness issues? Yeah, so I... I think a lot of people would like to just sit back and chalk it all up to social media. And, and, and there, uh, there's a portion of it, you know, that can be taken back to that. Um, I do also believe that social media provides a community where community is lacking for specific people um, to reach out for a helping hand. One thing I can say is mixed with social media and specifically quarantine, um, people, it was easy for people to forget compassion and to forget how important it is to be loving and compassionate and understanding to people in person. It's so easy to sit behind a screen. Again, we, we weren't able to see anybody for how long was lockdown? A year, a year and a half. A year and a half. A year and a half with very little human connection and and the human condition is to long for a connection. So when that is taken away from people so abruptly, that causes a change in behavior and not just a little one, a big one. People are so quick to judge immediately. And, and since they were able to sit behind a screen and judge after, you know, the lockdowns ended, people then carried that out into the real world and, and, and forgot that that's not the way the real world is supposed to go. And whether it's, Somebody is, somebody has their own opinion and and they think that that opinion is the right opinion. I have seen some really hateful things, specifically from college age students because, or my age and, you know, a little bit younger than me, a little bit older than me, because of that lack of human connection. People forgot how to just be, not, not everybody, but it's, it's easy to forget how to be decent to one another when you're not seeing anybody face to face. And then you do and, and expectations 
go crazy. You know what I mean? If, if somebody isn't doing exactly what you want them to do or, or believing exactly what you believe, it causes a huge break in that human connection. And yes, I, I don't want to say that's just due to social media, but I really think a bigger part of it was due to a lack of human connection. There are obviously a lot of other factors as well. Um, I mean, specifically in the recent years, um, anybody struggling with their own identity and, and being themselves oftentimes can not just feel hatred online, but feel hatred in person. Um, and oftentimes those people go online in order to find a community of people, but that, that doesn't always help when you're physically in an area that's not safe for you to be who you want to be. And not just adolescents, but people in the LGBT plus community, um, suicide rates for them are a lot higher. Than, and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know what I mean? Just because other people aren't in it doesn't well, mean they can't it's struggle. It's a real statistic. Yes, yeah. it's a real statistic. It's a lot higher because of the uncomfortability of being yourself. And it also varies from you know, region to region and, and family life. But not having support from people around you to be who you are, that, that does damage. And oftentimes you, you can't see past that, no matter what you're going through. Um, not feeling supported by the people around you, not having those resources, nothing. That can cause a lot of damage. And, and oftentimes, as, as somebody who, you know, I have tried to end my life twice. So I know how it feels and I know what it feels like to be in that position. And it seems like there's nothing beyond this and nobody will ever understand it. And it gets worse when people stop being understanding of, of other situations that aren't their own. And sort of to your point before, um, also, Robert, you talked about, you know, the availability of, of clinics and, and the ridiculously off unbalanced ratio of therapists to the population just in Southeast Wisconsin alone. Um, I also struggle with mental health and I'm seeing someone as well. And so when I sort of realized that um, or became a little more hyper aware that I was um, struggling more than I cared to admit with my mental health issues, um, I decided to try to get help. And it was um, it was a chore because I basically had to doctor shop. I'd call one place and they say, you know, we've got, yes, we have six doctors in this practice, but um, the wait list is like four months long. Well, I don't want to wait four months. I don't know that I can wait four months. And so I called around to several different doctors just to try to find someone who might be able to get me in sooner. And I'm just one person, right? I imagine that people who might struggle more than I do, um, who maybe don't have the resources that I do, what, you know, considering like, you know, having a job or, you know, maybe they, um, they don't have the support or the means to get somewhere. Um, I imagine that that's infinitely more difficult for them. So, um, I, that really, um, sort of hits home because I know how much I struggled when, 
um, I was trying to find someone. And then also, you know, with COVID, um, I was struggling with the isolation because the outlet that I had um, was gone and everybody was home and it was cool for about five minutes. Like, oh, I don't, you know, I can be at home and I don't have to do anything or I don't have to be with society. And I struggled a lot. And the one thing I took up was walking. So I started walking every day because I thought if I can get out of the house and get out of my own thoughts um, and not just sit here idly um, and, and start to have these negative thoughts, um, I can do something that is going to be positive both for my body and for my mind. And it really, really worked. But again, this is just one example of, of, um, of things. There are, pe- again, people out there who um, don't have the means, don't have the support, and, you know, Lily, you talked about um, the LGBTQ community and the suicide rate, especially for young members of that, um, of, of the LGBT community, um, I'm sorry, LGBTQ plus community. Um, you know, it's hard enough just trying to find acceptance um, in under normal circumstances. But then when you try to um, find acceptance by telling the world who you really are and what you want to be and, and, and um, um, what makes you feel like a normal person um, when that blows up in your face because society tells you that you can't be or society tells you that um, it's wrong or maybe your parents or family members you know, disown you or say these terrible things, I have to imagine even just based on the, the, the numbers that these kids who were struggling just to come to terms with their own identity um, are, are I, I can see why these numbers are so high in that community because it's, it's hard enough for them to be themselves. And now you've got an entire world telling you that you can't be yourself and that it's wrong to be yourself. And um, I just, I, it, it's beyond my comprehension that we can't be decent to each other. Like you were saying before, Lily, it's just, it's just such, um, it's such a shame. And it's also with, it's especially with high schoolers specifically where, um, the suicide rates, uh, skyrocket a bit. It's hard enough to be a high schooler. I was a high schooler not that long ago. It's tough enough as it is. And feeling uncomfortable with yourself more than beyond puberty. You know what I mean? Sure. Being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable with the person you are and, and wanting something else and being a whole person, but not being able to tell anybody else about it because you're afraid to be ridiculed or, or you're, you're scared of what somebody's going to say, or you're, you're scared for your safety. I, I can't even, if you can't tell I'm struggling to find the words to describe it, being a person on your own is tough. Adding all of that onto it, I I don't even... Well, and to your point also, because I'm going to make an assumption here, Robert, that you and I are probably about the same age, give or take. And I'm again, don't know what your age is, doesn't matter. Um, I would... And maybe you disagree with this, but I would say that it was probably easier to grow up in, you know, grade school and high school when we were younger than, say, you, Lily, because social media wasn't a thing. 
the internet was in its infantile stages. So we didn't have sort of this, there seems to be this, um, this, uh, overload because we never disconnect from all this information that's being thrown at us and all this negativity that you see in the media and 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 um on you know facebook or whatever social media platform so you know i i i have i've conversed with people before um people who have children now young children i would it, it has to be difficult to raise a child in society today or to be a youngster in society today than it was perhaps when you and I were younger, Robert, because there's just way too much input. And it seems like there's been a cultural shift um, when it comes to acceptance, because if you think about like the 90s or even the 80s, it was OK. Um, and 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 I don't want to I don't want to generalize like that's probably an oversimplification, but um, we just didn't have all of the things that are being said um, today about people who are different or identify as this or that. So um, there seems to be a um, sort of a, a lopsided um, statistic when it comes to growing up um, in the 90s or the 80s versus today. It's got to be more yeah. difficult. And again, social media in general, I don't want to sit here and say that it's all bad because it's not. There are some really beautiful things that happen and there are really important messages that we now have the opportunity to spread as far as we can um, without just word of mouth, which is awesome. There are communities for people where, say, in, in real life or at home, their community is lacking. But there are also unrealistic expectations of human beings all the time all the time and those unrealistic expectations they weigh heavy they weigh really really heavy and it should you would think that it's common sense for the the basis of of human beings to be nice you know what i mean and, you would and, think yeah you would think so and i i i just think since specifically it i mean you know cyberbullying has been a thing since social media started absolutely but since lockdown, people are masking cyberbullying as something else. And they're masking it as just being honest or, or just stating my opinion. It's still cyberbullying. You didn't, you didn't need to say it like that. You didn't need to say that. But people think they can get away from it, get away with it now because of the change in times and, and the way that they, they disguise their words and what they're saying. Sure. No, and that's a very good point because... Um, I've noticed that as well, where it's gone from cyberbullying to, well, you know, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just really opinionated or, um, you know, this is the normal thing and you're wrong. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely deep seated in the internet for sure. Um, and so I want to move on to another, um, sort of statistic and sort of turn it into a question. So there, there are some experts who say that suicide is preventable with timely, evidence-based, and often low-cost interventions. Um, and I guess the question is, does the overall data showing the uptick in suicides and suicide attempts suggest that those experts are oversimplifying the issue? Or do you perhaps agree with those experts that say it's preventable with those conditions? I think that there are probably greater minds than mine that are studying this and trying to understand it, but I can give my personal perspective on it. 
And I think that in some ways, um, perhaps it is an oversimplification the way it's being delivered. Um, and in other ways, um, it's about the context of it. You know, we've talked a lot um, just in this last thread of conversation, uh, and the root of it was really communication. I think that we take for granted what communication is and um, the understanding of, of the human species, how we're constantly evolving, and things like the cyberbullying. And it wasn't like there was never bullying back in the 80s, you know, that took place. But it's the speed. It's the speed at which things are occurring, and it's the way we're communicating. Communication is more than just language. You can communicate with somebody if you don't speak the same language as them. And, and one of the beautiful things about uh, the human condition is our ability to understand a person without words as well. We pick up on body language. We pick up on um, an inflection in the tone of how they say something. We pick up based on their posture. There are lots of things that we use for communication. And as we doll ourselves to utilizing that full array of communication, we are boiling it down to just words. And then words become more impactful and they can become more sharp. And so that, you know, implying that with simple intervention, yes, in a way, communication is that simple intervention. The ability to communicate both for the person who's struggling to be able to communicate what they're feeling and for the person they're communicating it to to understand and pick up on it without them having to spell it out. So, yes, in, in part, there is a very simplified factor of that. But the reality is understanding the construct that we live in in a society where we, in some ways, have desensitized ourselves to some things and in other ways we're evolving into our next generation. You know, you talked about you know, the difference when we were growing up. Yeah, there, the experience of living was different. The experience of watching a show was not streaming it anytime you wanted at 2 in the morning by yourself alone. It was you sat down at 7 p.m. when the episode aired, and if you didn't catch it, you were gone. You had to hear it secondhand from somebody, or wait five years for it to be a rerun. So there was it was different in the way things are experienced, and as that evolves in our culture, we have to understand and learn how to evolve with that, and how we take those experiences, and how we continue to have communication through it that's meaningful, and impactful in a way. And, you know, Lily has touched on it too. You know, social media isn't, uh, I don't see social media as good or bad. It's all in how it's used. Everything boils down to how you use it. And we have to, as a society, understand better how we're using these tools and how we're communicating. And I think suicide can be significantly impacted if there are conversations that are meaningful around it. If we learn how to communicate with each other, we learn how to understand each other. We don't just take words that are sent or words that are posted or, or words that are directed at us and take those for what they are. That we start to understand the full array of the human condition and understand that there isn't a one-size-fits-all. So I guess that is my answer, in my humble opinion, is that... That simplifies it in the way of thinking there is a one-size-fits-all 
answer to it, which I don't think is true. But at the root of it, yes, there is a simple element of that that I think that if we can find a way to tie ourselves to or connect to in that communication, that it could have a significant impact on it. Another unfortunate statistic, um, and you can correct me on the data if this is um, not correct. Uh, it said that um, men died by suicide three and a half more times more often than women, and women were one and a half more times likely to attempt suicide. Um, what do you suppose is the causality regarding men being essentially higher on the charts than women are when it comes to suicide? Well, I think um, we will see what the next 10 years hold related to that because I have a feeling that that is not going to be quite the divide that it is in 10 years because as we talked about some of the negative things of the evolution of culture, I think that one of the positive things is that men are opening up more, that it's becoming more acceptable to have conversations, share feelings, to have those kind of dialogue. Um, I think why it has been to this point is, by and large, there are different cultural expectations that we have hung on to for a very long time as far as what you're permitted to share, what you're permitted to feel, and how you should, um, how you should relay those things. Um, so I think that that probably has a larger impact on it than most other factors. Um, but I do suspect that that is one area that as a society we are starting to open up and starting to understand and, and starting to put less of a burden on that containing. I know that for myself, um, there I grew up in, you didn't talk about those things. Sure. You know, you didn't express feelings. You, you gritted through it, suck it up. That was kind of the mentality. Um, and I think that that by and large, uh, leads you to the belief that nobody cares about what you think, that you aren't seen as someone that is allowed to necessarily have those feelings, whether that's true or not. Um, I think that that's probably more of, of what that condition has led up to this point than any other. So you think that within 10 years that the sort of the, uh, the huge gap between statistics is going to level off a little bit more, perhaps maybe women will overtake men? Or do you think just because men are becoming more open to conversing about these issues that that will start to drop sort of appreciably as we move forward in the next 10 years? I think it may drop appreciably, but I also think that reporting is going to start being a little more accurate. And, uh, you know, so that said that women are twice as likely, and I absolutely believe that. And I think that there are certain things, um, even that we've seen, you know, not to get too political about it, but um, everything that happened with the abortion rights uh, being taken away and, and the way that we make knee-jerk decisions to things that impact so many people, I think those have heavier consequences than we realize. I think there are going to be a lot of academics that look back at this period of time, um, the COVID and post-COVID era, and there's going to be a lot to understand about the human condition. 
and how quickly we revert to a state of isolationism, how quickly those common social graces go away, um, how this instinctive drive within us to survive manifests itself in different ways and how we deal with our identity and communication and dealing with isolation. I think there's going to be a lot for us to understand uh, about the human condition that comes out of this. Uh, for as much bad that COVID brought, I think it brought a lot of perspective to people. And how that relates to mental health is we started to analyze what was really important in our lives. I know for myself, I went from working at an office in a cubicle to working at home and having a kid over my shoulder doing virtual class and, and being able to take moments with them that I wasn't getting before and not having to drive to and from an office. There, there were elements that you start to realize about your life and have perspective on as to what is truly important, what is necessary, and, and how we examine what those roles are within society. We talked about the LGBTQ plus community, and I think that's one of the cruxes of that is that we haven't really given time to understand and listen to those things. We, we have an interesting way as a society of listening without hearing. We absorb all the things being said, but we're not really hearing it. We're not really hearing what the common messages. We're not really hearing what's being said. Um, you know, it's been a decade or more since the incident with Matthew Shepard. And yet it, it seems like it, that was a catalyst for a start of change. But here we are all these years later, and, and we still don't seem to grasp the significance of that. We don't really hear the message of why this was such a thing, why it became such an international story. And it was one of the first times that a face was put to the kind of trauma that exists, the kind of uh, oppressive behavior that we can exhibit in group mentalities and in certain communities. And I think that for our, our part, the most important thing is that we get to a place somewhere in the future where we start to hear more than just listen. That's a really, really good point. Um, and I hope people heard that um, appropriately enough. Um, you know, when, when I was younger and perhaps when you were younger, uh, Robert, um, suicide was something that seemingly was off limits to talk about in the schools, in, you know, community centers, maybe even at home. Um, and now here we are in 2023 and the suicide rate is just off the charts through the roof. Um, you could even call it, say it's skyrocketing. Um, with, with that being said, why is suicide such a taboo topic in these schools? And what do you think needs to be done in order to raise awareness and turn the corner from the stigma of not having these conversations that we've been talking about here um, the last hour? Yeah, I mean, I can start this, and I think Lily will have some really good insight on sure. this. But um, as far as the schools, it's comfort. You know... I went to college to be a teacher and nowhere along those lines did I ever have a class that taught me anything about how to address the mental well-being of students. There's lots of things you learn about managing a classroom, lesson planning, structuring, 
uh, all, all the essential things, but the understanding or knowing how to, to address uh, individual needs is largely left to the teachers and the administrators to figure out. And so I think there's a comfort level there that makes it difficult for them to accept things that they aren't assured of what the response is going to be. So, for instance, um, we've tried to get resources into schools before, and we've gotten feedback like, oh, the imaging on this is a little too dark, or the, the words you use. And, and one of those examples was the word was suicide in the term suicide hotline. Well, okay, so we need to find a way to communicate to the children that if they feel suicidal, that there is a hotline for them to call without using the word suicide or using pictures that are more of like a, a medication commercial running through a wheat field, you know, in the sun on a balmy 72 degree day as a way to relay things. It, it, it's, it's not a criticism necessarily of the schools. I think it's a criticism of the system and that we aren't finding better ways to become more comfortable with having these conversations. Um, I think that that is why that has more of an impact in schools and we're seeing more of that. Uh, I do think it's improving and I think that they're becoming more accessible. Um, but Lily, what are your thoughts? Um, I would agree 100%. Uh, people don't like to be uncomfortable. It's in the word. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to have those conversations because they're not easy. And also, especially as a teacher, they have so much to do and so many things to deal with, and I am not diminishing their credit whatsoever. They have a lot on their plate as it is, and they are not getting paid nearly as as much as they should be. No, that's fair. But in general, uncomfortability. Um, and and that stems, it could stem from, from on their own, um, from how specific teachers or administrators grew up, or um, from the environment of the school, depending on what school they work at, conversations they've had with coworkers, and also worrying about reactions from children. Um, that's, those are hard conversations to have. And on top of that, there is also, like Robert said, a level of people thinking it's inappropriate. People thinking that, say you were to talk about suicide, um, using strong language as suicide is inappropriate. What if you put that into somebody else's head? What if you yada, yada, yada? When the reality of it is confronting it head-on, face-forward, is the best way to prevent it. Talking about it is the best way to prevent it. Allowing people a helping hand and letting them know that they're not alone in what they're going through is the best way to prevent it. That doesn't mean that you need to go into a class of preschoolers and, and talk about suicide, but you can talk about mental health in terms that is age-appropriate. And I, I had done that, you know, taught with younger ages and, and young kids, you, you talk about feelings. And what happens, who do you talk to, who do you call when you're experiencing a certain amount of negative feelings? Let's, let's go through all of you. I want to say, like, raise your hand and, and tell me an emotion or, or a feeling. You acknowledge all of them 
and you acknowledge the fact that it's okay to feel all of your feelings. Without the bad ones, you wouldn't appreciate the good ones. But when there is an overflow of negative feelings and loneliness, what do you do and where do you go? And you can have that conversation with young kids. I have. I, I would bring in a book. It was called Princess in the Pea or Princess in the Fog based on Princess in the Pea. And it was about a princess who had everything that she could have ever wanted until the fog came and, and she didn't know why and it was uncomfortable and she didn't think anybody else would understand it. But through the help of communication and talking to your friends and family, the fog came and went sometimes and it didn't necessarily go away but it was managed and it can be managed and it's normal even if you have everything you could ever want and as you get older those conversations begin to become a little bit more in depth um, in particular and then you can really talk about what's going on but the most important thing moving forward to the next generation is talking about mental health starting at a young age you don't have Again, you don't have to tell kindergartners about suicide or what suicide is, but you talk to them about mental health in terms that they can understand. It's not always inappropriate to bring that topic up. That makes sense. Well, I'm, you know, the more you talk about it, the more you um, make it okay to have dialogue and sort of take the stigma away. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about, um, you know, there's a way to approach the topic or broach the topic without making it seem like doom and gloom, right? Um, which is fair. I mean, you know, obviously a lot of these kids probably don't understand the full depth of, of, the, um, of the subject material. But I remember being a kid in school, and one of the things that um, they talked about all the time was don't smoke. And they would bring in pictures of, of cancered lungs or lungs, a picture of someone's lungs from someone who smoked. And they had no problem shoving that in your face and saying, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Or this is your brain on drugs and this is your brain not on drugs. And I remember just how um, there was no subtlety. It was just very boom right in your face. And I think in some cases it worked, obviously, because if you look at a picture of diseased lungs or lungs that, you know, from someone who smoked, it's pretty disgusting. Um, or I remember uh, a science teacher taking a cigarette and letting the smoke go through cotton that was in like an enclosure and then the cotton would be brown and gross. Um, sometimes those extreme examples work, but I have to believe that there's a way to approach it, like you were saying, Lily, that um, is constructive without making it so doom and gloom that we can sort of introduce the topic to younger minds so that um, they know as they're growing up that this is something that's okay to talk about. This is something that it's okay to express. This is something that it's okay to, to maybe bring up to your parents or loved ones because you might be feeling something very profound. And if you don't have this information, maybe you don't know how to, how to talk about it or how to handle it. And if, you, if these things are being told to you when you're younger, um, it's got to be something that would be beneficial to people who are hearing it. Um, I think if we just disregard it, um, casually altogether, then we're adding to the stigma that we can't talk about these things. And it's just adding more to the root of the problem. So um, again, I have to believe that there has to be a, a middle ground, call it, where we introduce these things into the schools or into the youth centers or whatever the case may be, um, and talk about them in a way that, um, again, does not is not doom and gloom, but also 
lets you know that this is a real thing mental mental illness mental health it's a real thing and it needs to be talked about and you know pamphlets and brochures and stuff like that these are things that need to be accessible to everyone but especially kids because these are the ones where we're seeing a lot of suicide uptick in a much younger generation um and it's mostly because they don't have a way to sort of deal with these issues because they've never been approached with um, how to deal with it or how to express it. Yeah, and that's also not saying that, that you know, when you go into a, a, a young classroom or you start the conversation in a young classroom, that you're expecting a four-year-old or a three-year-old to tell you that they're depressed. That is, that's not it. That's not the point of the conversation. It's the point of the conversation is moving forward. It being able to be comfortable talking about it and, and to feel as if it's you're not alone in feeling how you're feeling because I, I also think oftentimes when conversations don't start early enough, people don't know until it's too late. And, and, and the damage has already irreversibly been done. And, and you don't want to have those conversations when somebody is at their breaking point because you they didn't have anybody before it's it's hard to figure it out you know later in life when it's they've never been used to talking about it with anybody sure and also you know we sometimes forget that these young kids five six-year-olds they're smarter than we give them credit for right because Again, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, don't talk to strangers or stop, drop and roll. And if you if you if you approach it, maybe in those terms, like giving them a way to sort of um, make associations with things, whether it's an acronym or or whatever the case may be, there's ways to introduce this to the younger generation that people have to agree would not be about, you know, showing videos of people jumping off of a bridge or, you know, crime scene photos or anything like that. They're, this is purely educational. This is to help stop the bleeding because that's what's happening right now is there's just this gaping wound um, that's opening more and more because so many people are uh, pushing back against the idea that mental health and mental illness and suicide is something that we shouldn't be talking about in these schools. Um, and that's an, a dangerously arrogant way of thinking. And uh, it, we have the model for success on this numerous times over the dare program. Oh, sure. The sex ed program when that was introduced into schools, you know, there was a time we talked about why the stigma existed and why, you know, the evolution of that, why it wasn't comfortable to talk about. You know, families didn't report when a family member committed suicide, uh, only going back 50 years because the Catholic Church, if your family member committed suicide, they couldn't be buried or have a service at the Catholic Church. So there there have been things, and it was the same with sex ed in the schools and, and conversations like that, is that there was a stigma because of um, the religious state of society and you know, nothing against religion or, or any of that kind of thing. It's just that it, as society changes, things become more accessible to us. Sure. And we've been able to find ways of doing things through things like the D.A.R.E. program or through how we've introduced sex ed. I, I went down and volunteered in Milwaukee. They had this big back-to-school thing down in the D.A.R.E. district where they were handing out resources. And one of the tents there was handing out condoms and Plan B pills. 
that's where we've come from what the conversation was in the 90s about that, you know, or in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. Uh, even in that, that time, the accessibility or the openness about that conversation didn't exist. So it, the availability and the, the opportunity to do it is there. And we have the models in place to start doing it. It's just, again, you know, I don't mean to criticize all of our lawmakers because I'm sure there are many that are very well-intentioned. But as society is moving faster, we talked about the speed at which we're moving now and the speed of communication. We need to be able to keep up with that and keep up with that need. Um, none of this is groundbreaking. Mr. Rogers was talking about feelings decades ago on public television. It, it's not like the idea of introducing those thoughts to young children has never existed and nobody's ever figured out how to have that conversation. It's now incumbent on us to pressure our lawmakers, to pressure our communities to start to catch up to this and have these conversations and realize that there is a way forward and it's critical for us to start making that movement. You know, you bring up a good point, which is Mr. Rogers, who, you know, had a very, you know, I think the budget for his show when he first started in the the early sixties was $10. I think I heard him saying, and then there was government funding and, you know, the ideas that Mr. Rogers was presenting and sort of humanizing on public television weren't radical ideas, but had never been done before. And I mean, we don't have enough Mr. Rogers in society. Um, and I think maybe that's something that perhaps should be brought back is we need more role models like Mr. Rogers to talk to kids in a way that is not patronizing or talking down to them, but to express things in a way that they can understand that's a little more a softer approach, kind of like we were saying before, where it's not doom and gloom, but kids need a way to sort of internalize this information that isn't going to scare them or confuse them. And, you know, another thing you talked about was the government. And I think it's fair to say that mental illness and, and, and suicide is a public health crisis. And by many estimations, it's an epidemic. The, is the government doing enough? What does the, what does the government need to do in order to um, address these programs? Because I feel like even the government, you know, when you see these, these um, presidential candidates or senators or governors and they're politicking and they're, um, you know, they're on the stage and they're talking about their, um, their agenda and stuff like that. We never hear anything about mental health or suicide prevention or the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the rate of suicide for, um, for former, um, for military veterans is really, really high and that kind of thing. What, what do we need from our lawmakers, from our, from our governors, from our senators, from, from the president, whatever you want to call it? What do we need from them in order to sort of turn the tide and maybe um, try to bring these numbers down? Well, um, the short answer is, are they doing enough? No. Um, but with something that is a health crisis, is there ever enough? Um, I, I think that What's more important is the intention behind it and the effort made toward it. I don't think anybody expects our government to solve all of our problems for us, but I think that we do expect them to represent us and to represent who we are and the struggles that we're going through. And 
like you said, the fact that it is not a topic of campaign generally um, is a reflection of the fact that they aren't reflecting because it is prevalent. It's one of the number one causes of death in society. Um, In some of those demographic windows, it's number two only to accident-related deaths, which is the lump in for all deaths that aren't explained clear-cut, like heart attacks, gun violence, car accident. Like, it's one of the most impactful things going on right now and one of the least talked about. And it's for the same reason that we've kind of discussed and touched on, that it's not comfortable for people to talk about. And I think that it's shied away from because of that. But I think that's why it's more important for our leaders to be the voices out there bringing this conversation up, talking about it, normalizing it, and making it accessible to people. I, and I know I'll catch a lot of flack for this um, from some people, and I guess I don't care. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. It, it's infuriating to me that the same government that, essentially refuses to talk about this public health crisis and they treat it like a stigma or like a, you know, um, they basically brush it off. They don't even talk about it. It's the same government where rooms full of um, old middle-aged men are deciding what a woman can do with her body. How is that um, less um, difficult to talk about when it affects an entire gender versus something that is affecting the entire population because i read somewhere that 77% 77% of suicides um take place in the low to middle class income families in the world not just this country but the world and that seems to be the demographic of what a lot of politics are going for the middle class people and so i i i defy politicians to say that um that Yes, I, you know, suicide and mental health is important, but we have politicians who are who are making laws that are taking away basic health rights from women and their right to choose what they do with their own bodies. So, um, again, sorry to get on a on my soapbox here, but it's just it's infuriating that they pick and choose what it is that they choose to um, to treat as important because it's political points or because of religion or because it looks great on TV or, or it sounds good on a soundbite, but this is a real problem. And so um, I, I feel like you made a good point. The government isn't supposed to solve all our problems, but this is something that needs to be addressed um, both on the federal and state level. So sorry, I, d- I didn't mean to take over the conversation there, but um, um, Lily, you look like you have uh, some things to say about um, the things we've been talking about. So please um, take over before I um, you know, no, shoot I, myself in the foot. I enjoyed listening, hundred percent, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I've been writing down notes just about everything that's been said, so sure. I don't forget. Um, I have ADHD, and that tends to happen. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but going post it. <laughs> yeah, going off of what you said, especially, and I'm again, I'm I am not trying to make just live or any of this like a political statement, but it's it's true. You know, um, you said I I can't believe that a room of however many men can make decisions about what women do with their bodies. And that is because it's easy to talk about things and it's easy to make decisions on things when you don't actually have ties to them and when they don't necessarily affect you. It's easy to ignore things that also don't affect you. It can go either way. Um, Whereas it's 
when you're in the heat of it or, or you're struggling with it, it's harder to talk about and it, it feels I'm gonna get I'm gonna get lost with my words. Well, we're just, we're, and sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I, no, I just have to interject. Yeah. Um it's it's a dichotomy, it's a it's hypocrisy, right? Because yeah. some of these politicians, especially the ones that are are lobbying against a woman's right to choose, are pro life. And we're talking about um you know, and medically, and you can take whatever side, what the definition of a life is, because in many cases, some of these um, terminations of pregnancy are um, embryos, they're fetuses, they're not, you know, whatever you want to call them technically. And if you're pro-life, why are you not advocating for people who are alive right now? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, sorry for, you know, no, that's I could, okay. We, I, just, we could, I could sit and chit chat. And, and, and I want to be clear, like, I, I don't, I don't want to make this about politics. And I don't, yeah. I'm not trying to infer that or insinuate that just live is politically aligned with anything. But you know, this is a real conversation about things that are happening in society today. And so some of this stuff is, is, like I said, very difficult to talk about and listen to. But it's a conversation that needs to be had. We need to, we need to churn the earth with, with these words and these conversations and these questions because the problem isn't getting solved just by looking at statistics and, and um, you know, painting pictures and bar graphs. We need to have these conversations, and that's why we are here right now. So I'm sorry, yeah. Lily, please continue. Oh, no, it's okay. Um, with this, I'm also you know, not trying to push a political agenda. I'm, we're here for mental health purposes and the the spread of information, 100%. But you asked how the government, um, what, if they're lacking in some areas, et cetera, and Robert had a great answer and a great expla uh, explanation. I also think it goes beyond just government officials, people in positions of power talking about mental health, beyond that. Um, it's how they talk to each other. Sure. And, and on both sides, on both sides, no matter what, it is how they talk to each other and how they talk about the other side. And that is true both ways. Yeah. Mental illness will, and suicide is not a partisan no, issue. It is not. It is not a political issue when it comes down to like, you know what I mean? If, if somebody's struggling with their mental health and they're open about it, that should not, you know what I mean? Go Absolutely. either side politically. Um, but the way that our, our government officials and our, leaders speak to each other and speak about other people um oftentimes it becomes a cavi cavity to facilitate hate towards another group and it gives people almost an excuse to talk however they want because the leaders of our nation are talking however they want attitude so, reflects leadership yes so not only is it we don't have enough conversations about mental health but but people on both sides are the way they treat each other has a lot to do with it as well. And that's not the way we should behave because at the end of the day, no matter who you are, no matter where you align, we are all human beings and we are all just trying to live through this life. And when you see on TV or in interviews, people talking so poorly about a certain group of people or a certain kind of people, again, on both sides. That creates a huge divide. And therefore, it is also harder to reach out to other people when you are struggling because there's, whether you have differences in political opinion or... or 
ideology. ideologies because of that being so intense it makes it hard to reach out to other people for help because you don't know how it's going to be perceived and going I'm going to go all the way back now because I was writing notes um, going back to what you said about um, people not reporting suicides you know 50 years ago because sure. of it, it aligning with a certain religion or, or anything like that I went to a Catholic school um, for seven years and a lot of it I, I loved a lot I but I do remember being younger and I was curious about suicide and and I had asked somebody um, in my school well what if like if you're considering suicide murder like what happens and being younger I got the response that was you're gonna get the repercussions of that up until I was in and that didn't sit right with me up until I was in eighth grade and I was in my religion class and it, it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth um, when somebody told me that so I was a little bit bitter I, I would say um, but I had a religion teacher and I asked the same question and he looked at me and he said I guess I didn't ask the question. I, I made a statement and said it was how wrong it was. And I had that teacher look at me and, and say that if somebody is not in their right state of mind, they're sincerely not going to be punished for that. And do you, you know what I mean? If, if somebody is to the point where they're going to take their own life, they're not in a perfect state of mind. And so I think when we talk about religion or talk about sides, politics, whatever, it can't all be generalized. I we, we can't generalize one group of people to think and act a certain way about everything. And when I asked my teacher that in class and he gave me that response, it it almost gave me a like a whether I believe what they believe or not, it, it gave me hope in in that not everybody thinks one way and that there are really compassionate people in every corner of the earth and every, in every group of people, there are compassionate people and bringing back in the divide between countries, whether it's, or between our country, whether it's political party, what you believe in ideologies, there's common ground everywhere. Sure. And as long as love and support is at the root of all of it, people should be able to help one another out no matter what and and find love at the root of everything. And, and that was, yeah, just a story that I wanted to add in there because no, and you can get different sides from different people in every group. You know what I mean? Yeah, and to Robert's point before, and I think this bears repeating, there's no one thing you can pinpoint yeah. as the, the crux of the situation, yeah, absolutely. right? Um, but also another point that you made is we don't know Un unless we have conversations about this. This yeah. is how we this is how we figure out problems. We have to talk about the things, even if they're difficult to talk about, we still have to talk about it. We we were it's incumbent upon society to figure this out or at least try to figure this out. And the more we talk about it and the more we expose the truth and the more that we um have different opinions and have different minds talking about it, the closer we come to finding solutions or moving in the right direction. And it doesn't matter if, you know, 
the different people have different religions, they're different colors, they're different sexual orientations, they're different ages, it doesn't matter. The more people that are talking about this, the more we're going to move towards moving the needle back in the right direction. And that's really sort of the, um, the, the overarching theme of this conversation is we need to talk about this more. More than it's being talked about now, more than this podcast episode. Like this needs to be a conversation that is being had in schools, in homes, at jobs, um, between lovers and friends and whatever the case may be. It needs to be out there because this, this, this planet is suffering because of mental illness and suicide. And it feels like it's frustrating to like you're screaming at a wall um, with a problem and the wall is just not doing anything. So um, it, it's tough, I know, to have these conversations, but they need to be had. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to kind of piggyback on the same thing that Lily was just saying, you know, I, I've referenced the Catholic Church twice in this podcast in two entirely different lights. And I think, you know, the first time was I talked about Catholic charities and how they are one of the forefront resources, picking up the gap, opening new clinics throughout Racine and Kenosha, making it available for bilingual services and things like that. And at the same time, in the 80s, they had a very strong stance on this subject material. That's one of the beautiful things about humanity and being sentient beings is our ability that we can stay strong behind our principles, but evolve our way of thinking. And as we continue to evolve, even an institution as old as the Catholic Church is able to stand firm behind its beliefs and principles, but evolve its way of thinking and how it applies to modern society. And that's one of the things that we all need to start to learn to do is that in the way we communicate, in the way that we address these issues, that we just need to be able to evolve with time. We don't have to give up our ideas. We don't have to give up the principles or the moral center that we have. We just have to be able to evolve the way of thinking based on the new knowledge that we're obtaining on a daily basis and the way we perceive the environment we live in today. Society today is not the same as it was 100 years ago, not even a blink remotely close. The technological advances, the, the standard of living, all of these things are miles away from what they were decades ago or even two decades ago, even the 90s. We used to wear hot pink in the 80s and we don't, you know, we can change with time. Um, and as we change those things, it's just understanding that we don't have to give up our identity or who we are to do that. We just have to understand that with new knowledge comes new ideas, and with new ideas comes a way of reevaluating the way we think. So I want to um, move the conversation here into um, asking a couple of things. First of all, what are some of the warning signs that people should look for in someone that you think might have suicidal ideations? What, what, what are some of the warning signs that, that might cause someone to stop and say, I should check on this person, or I should maybe try to offer this person some help? What, what can we tell the folks out there about some of these warning signs? Well, there are a couple of surefire warning signs, but they don't always show up in everybody. Not everybody really gives clear warning signs. Sure. Oftentimes, 
when talking about suicide and people who've committed suicide, you'll hear people say, we had no idea. Nobody saw it coming. And that goes back to, you should check on your friends no matter what. Sure. Always, especially this day and age, check on your friends no matter what. And make sure, friends, loved one, neighbors, anybody, make sure that people know that you're a safe space, making that known. One of, personally, one of my, um, I would say one of the biggest warning signs is isolation and, and almost not loss of personality, but a loss of longing for zest in life. A loss of... Vibrance. Vibrance and almost... You can tell when somebody has given up before they have fully given up. Not always, but if there are going to be warning signs, if you have known somebody for a while and they went from being excited and and passionate and driven and... Social. Social, yes. And you watch a pattern of all of that start to go away pulling away from your passions, pulling away, say they had a job that they loved, pulling away from that, pulling away from friends and family, and not even physically isolating themselves, but mentally isolating themselves is a, for me personally, I would think that that would be the biggest sign in my opinion. And I know there's some of the more common warning signs out there that get talked about all the time, like someone starts giving away their stuff or, you know, that kind of thing. And I, and, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I think some of those are almost kind of cliche because you don't necessarily see that too much anymore. Um, but to your point, Lily, there's a lot of more subtle nuances of some of the people sort of withdrawing from society, whether it's they're not being as social anymore. Um, the light is gone from their eyes. They're just essentially um, giving up and they're they're inching further and further back from um the um the pulse of society um robert do you have something to add to yeah i mean and the other factors are just looking at the environmental factors around them you know what 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 their family life looks like what their friendships look like did they have a sudden change in in their financial situation you know sudden loss in income loss of a job um because as lily touched on you know some Every case is uniquely different, but a lot of the times, one of the common things you see with um, these sudden, I put that in quote, suicides, are that it wasn't necessarily that it was sudden, it was just that something tipped that was of a catastrophic enough nature for them that they didn't have a long buildup to it. So they lost a job, they lost a relationship, they lost a loved one. You know, they they suffered some type of impactful event in their life and didn't have a coping mechanism in place or a support network. So it's really looking at all the factors. It's looking at behavior, absolutely, but it's also looking at the environmental factors around them, what their support network looks like, um, you know, what their availability looks like, and being able to kind of assess that. There there are lots of people that will function their entire life with deep depression and PTSD and never once contemplate suicide. And there, there are other people that have never showed a sign of depression or anxiety or any of that and then commit suicide. So there's no real one factor to it. I, I think that 
the most important thing is just being aware. You know, they say a, a kind word costs you nothing, but silence can cost you everything. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to just check in with people. Everybody in your life, send a kind word to them, check in, have a communication with them. Um, it can be uncomfortable at times if we've all been in that position where you have somebody that you know, you start the conversation, it's going to be a conversation, you know. And so people shy away from that. And, you know, I can understand that compulsion, but it's just important to, to really understand that it, it costs you nothing to be kind. Um, and to have a conversation costs you nothing but time. Um, but to not um, can cost you a lifetime of guilt and a lifetime of questions. And so it's important just to stay connected to the people in your life, to make the time and effort, however small, um, because the one common thing with all suicides was that um, there wasn't a connection. There wasn't, you know, you don't hear people talk about that, oh, I just spoke to them five minutes before this. It was like, oh, I just spoke to them last week, or I just spoke to them two weeks ago, or we were at a party a month ago. And that's the thing. Um, we, the more connected we are, the more we understand each other, the more we understand each other, the more we appreciate each other, the more we appreciate each other, the more we're connected. And no one who feels connected and feels supported and feels loved is going to be left out there. Our, our constant message to people and like our slogan is you are not alone. Just simply telling somebody they're not alone sometimes is the deciding factor. So I want to um, present sort of a scenario. And I want you to, if you, if you don't mind, what I'm going to ask you is to address, first of all, there's a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's there are people out there who look at suicide and say you know, that's selfish or it's the easy way out or um, it's stupid or, you know, on the religious side, you know, you're going to hell for that. So if you don't mind, let's pretend that you are addressing right now a listener who is one of those people. What would you say to the people out there who say the things like that that sort of add to the stigma of suicide? I love you. I appreciate that that is the way you think now, but I would encourage you to learn a little more about it. Um, it can seem that way from the outside because you aren't the one in the situation. You're not the one with insomnia staying up until five in the morning to sleep for 45 minutes to wake back up in a panic to rush to work. You're not the one contending with not living up to the expectations of family or parents or friends, whether they have those realistic expectations or you have them of yourself. You're not the individual dealing with some deep-rooted trauma that you've never dealt with or gotten over with or, or found a way to communicate or been stuck in an environment where you don't have anybody to talk to or relate to about it. You haven't struggled with what it is to be in a financially difficult situation to not be able to identify as who you believe you are inside and have it be accepted. There are a lot of factors that go into somebody making a decision like suicide. And whether it's a built-up process or an impulsive decision, it is the most difficult decision. There is a finality to it 
and there's no return from that. The fact that a large number of people who attempt suicide don't attempt it again says something for the gravity of the, the mental state they were in at the time and the way that they understand and comprehend it after the fact. They're, we're not immune as humans. We're not immune to any of it. And we all have to share the same space and we all have to make the best life we can for ourselves. And while I appreciate and I love every person, to blanketly make a statement that you understand the intentions behind another human being, that you understand their life, you understand their struggle, you understand the difficulty they're coping with, what they see is their future, the rest of their life. And to be able to say that that's easy is very misinformed. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's, um, sorry. Um, Lily, anything? Just to add on to it. Um, they're also, I have come, I'm, and I'm sure Robert has before too, come in contact with people who do feel that way, especially when I was so open about it and, going out to different events. Um, and oftentimes you'll hear people who think that way say, well, I've gone through this and I've gone through that. And there was never a time where I thought that suicide was the only option. There was never a time. Humans are different. Everybody is different. The way you cope with something is different than the way somebody else does. You could have gone through the exact same thing the way your brain reacts is different. There, isn't, there are no two people exactly alike. And being, understanding, and instead of having the mentality that it's selfish and or cowardly, you don't know what it feels like until you know. And I, if I have went, when I do and when I did have conversations with people like that, like this, I would always say, you don't know until you know. And I pray to whomever that you never find out. Ever. Compassion goes a thousand, a thousand miles, a million miles. It brings us farther than anything else, and it connects us more than anything else. I also acknowledge the fact that people who say that may have been hurt in the past say they were affected by a family member or a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, it doesn't matter who had committed suicide and oftentimes those, those feelings those sad feelings and those misunderstood feelings and, and feelings that never got worked out can harbor into hatred easily oftentimes people like Look for somebody to blame and something to blame. And that would be it. And for somebody who hasn't been affected by suicide or mental health or, or anything like that, you oftentimes I, I just tell them that I hope they never are 
but I really urge you or them to do a little bit more research. And oftentimes when people tell me that and then I share my story, I was personally impacted. Again, I've said this a bunch of times over the course of how long we've been here, but I know how it feels. And there is nothing that can even describe it. I could try my hardest. I could talk to somebody until I'm blue in the face who's saying all that to me. It won't even scratch the surface of how deep it feels and how it overflows into every point of your life. Urging people, again, loving everybody and, and offering love back to a statement that seems to be hateful is the best you can do. And, and offering people resources to learn is the best you can do. And also being understanding that that they may be coming from a hard situation as well. And they may be harboring feelings that they were never able to work out and, and they just turned into hate. It's all good to acknowledge as well. So you've addressed the people who sort of um, have negative connotations about suicide with some of the cliches and um, more drastic statements. Now, I'd like for you to address the listener out there who may be having these suicidal ideations, who might be thinking about um, suicide or contemplating or know someone that um, is having these difficulties um, and address them directly um, about what they should do or how they might handle the profound thing that they're going through. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say the cliche things like you are not alone. Um, you know, the cat poster on the wall hang in there. Those things are easy. But I guess probably the most important thing is knowing that the future holds limitless possibility. The decision to take your own life is a very final decision. And as difficult as things are or may feel at any given time, it only takes one instance to change everything. I, for me, that instance was the birth of my son my firstborn and um, it irrevocably changed my life because it changed the way I looked at everything things that seemed to be frustrations to me before that seemed meaningless after the beauty of that experience and, and understanding the connectivity to um, you know uh, um, your, your progeny and, and how that echoes you into the future how that's a remnant of you um, the incredible responsibility that that is and so for me that's what that was is it it was impactful because it, it changed everything in one instant to where I remembered the next day waking up and just things that I would counter 
in my everyday life that normally would be a frustration that, oh, this is inconvenient or that, or, oh, this again, you know, oh, traffic today. Things that seemed like they mattered before um, just didn't have the same gravity anymore. And so to a person going through that, the first thing I would urge them to know is that there are people that care. And, um, you know, even if it's not a person in their immediate circle, there are people that care. There are people like us that just live, that we've dedicated our time and energy to this because we care. You know, it's not, we're not doing this just for people immediately in our lives. We're doing this for all people because of our understanding of the impact of it and the importance of it and, and how final that decision is and, and what the struggle with mental health is. And there are people that care even if they're not immediately there in front of you. And I urge you to seek them out. I urge you, as uncomfortable and as difficult as it is, I understand how difficult it is to just say, get help. But I promise you it's out there. And I promise you there are people that care. And I promise you that that one moment that can turn everything around for you is ahead of you. It's ahead of each and every one of us. It's just about our ability to seize that opportunity when it comes. Thank you. Uh, Lily? There aren't many things in this world that are final. There aren't many circumstances that happen to you or, or unfortunate events that happen that are final, that are definitive. Suicide is one of the small amount of things that are final. Even if you are in a community or an environment where you're not receiving the correct attention or the, the love from your family or anybody that you're around, that doesn't mean that it's not out there. And just because things are bad now, they're not going to be forever. I get it. Life is hard and being a human is hard. And there's not necessarily going to be a time where being a human being is easy. But when you have each other, there are things that are worth it. There are things coming in the future that are worth it. If you're struggling with something now, whether it be the loss of a job or financial situation or you're just having or you're just depressed you're just sad and these are your ideations that you're having right now it's not final things change and evolve and there are communities of people who would love to have you and would love to hear from you and there are people in the future who would love you and even if you don't think that right now, there are people in your life who love you. Your life will not go. You won't. You will be missed by many, whether they knew you or not. There are opportunities. There are communities. There are outreach centers to help. And again, I know we talk about social media in one direction. But if you're stuck somewhere, 
physically stuck somewhere and there's not a community near you, there are people in programs who want to know you. And going on, there are going to be people who are so lucky to meet you and people that you're going to be so lucky to meet. There will be events that change your life and make everything worth it. Because at the end of the day, you may think that nobody knows what you're going through, but there are people who do and there are people who can help and who want to help and they want to know you and they, they want to see where your future goes. You're loved and you should have the opportunity to be for as long as possible. And because you've been where you are now, you have so much to teach other people in your life that have never been there and never understood. You have so much more to give and to teach people just because you've been where you are. Um, you know, realistically, we could talk for hours about all of this stuff. And um, we haven't really had a chance to talk about Just Live, the organization. And I, I hope that one or both of you or whoever is involved with Just Live um, is willing to come back and we can talk more about this stuff. But there are a couple of things that I want to touch on. Um, first of all, for the people who are out there who might have questions, are looking for information, maybe have some of these suicidal ideations, is your organization one that can be contacted by someone in order to get resources or get pointed in the right direction or, you know, crisis help. Can you speak to any of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we maintain the resources on our website at www.justliveinc.org. That's J-U-S-T-L-I-V-E-I-N-C.org. We have a resource page on there where we consistently update it with all the local resources um, in the area, and we network with those resources. Um, we've had people call us with difficulty getting in, like what you discussed, trying to get into somebody to see somebody, and you know we're more than happy to point people in the right direction. Um, we encourage people to make to access help whatever is most convenient for them. And whether that's contacting us, whether it's going on and researching on the resource page, whether it's using something like the Hope Line, uh, text Hope Line, uh, or the nationwide um, crisis intervention line, uh, whatever avenue is most accessible to you or that you're most comfortable with, just start there. You don't have to solve all the problems in one night. You don't have to, um, you know, jump head first into this just make the movement toward that make whatever first step is comfortable and you know at just live we try to provide as much support as we can we try to partner with as many organizations as we can and network those organizations with each other so that we're building a stronger community together um and obviously you have you mentioned the resources uh link on your page and that lists all of the local organizations that you partner with um, so that people have access to this information and stuff like that. So again, it's www.justliveinc.org. Um, so I know that you mentioned um, much earlier in the conversation that 
Just Live um, is staffed with a 100% volunteer base. So if people wanted to get involved with Just Live on a volunteer basis, what do they need to do? What steps should they take in order to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, go to our website, go to Facebook, go to Instagram, whatever is easiest for you. Send us a message. Um, We have specific volunteer links on the website or we have just contact us forums on there that you can reach out or we have a contact number uh, that you can call on there so whatever is easiest for you we're always welcome to volunteers and you know we're we understand um, you had touched on it like how do we find the time we understand everybody's time is valuable so even if it's just volunteering for one event a year or or you have a specific thing that you're interested in volunteering for we'd like to work with you we're we're, we're not interested in in um, what you can do for us is what we can do for you if you want to get involved we'll find a way for you to get involved even if it's not directly with us in one of our events maybe it's a, an event in your community that you're passionate about uh, we we just are encouraging folks to get involved and, and take that first step it's extremely fulfilling it's incredibly informative and it makes a huge difference just having that connection to the community understanding what resources are available um, so that you never know who you might encounter that, you know, one resource that you were connected to through us or somebody else that you're able to pass that knowledge along and help somebody else. Um, and then one last thing I want to talk about, um, and th- I think this is important because I'm looking at this poster here. This is your 14th anniversary of the Labor of Love Music Festival um, presented by Just Living. So can you tell the folks a little bit about the music festival and sort of some of the particulars about um, how they can go or get involved? Absolutely. This will be the easiest music festival you ever attend because it's absolutely free to attend. It's family friendly. We encourage entire families to come out with their kids. Uh, we are hosting the festival this year at Hart Park in Wauwatosa uh, on Sunday, September 3rd from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We have four incredible bands that are coming out. Our headliner is a band, Good Morning Bedlam, who they stuck through us through the pandemic. Um, we couldn't be more appreciative of them. They, We had contracts signed for all of our bands for the 2020 Labor Love Festival by the beginning of March. And then a week into March... Oofed. Bad timing. Yeah. The world was over. And uh, we were, we were very proud of the fact that we worked with every single one of those bands to still have them come and perform. We did a live stream festival that year instead. They all showed up. There was a small group of us in a studio, them performing their sets. And then we had them come right back the very next year at the same lineup. We even added one more to that lineup to perform back in person. They stuck through us through all that. Um, So we're excited to have them. They're very passionate about mental health. It's important to them. Uh, We also have Adam Gruel and the Space Burritos. Adam Gruel from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, um, big bluegrass folk rock band. Um, If you enjoy that, you are going to absolutely love him with the Space Burritos because they are quite the collection and put on quite the show. And then uh, Brett Newski, his band is a big local draw up there. He is super passionate about mental health. He even wrote a book about it um, that's available through him. And he's coming out and one of the best live performers locally that you'll get the chance to see. And then Ben Moana, who is Ugandan-born. He's 
from Kenosha. Yeah. Um, comes up, performs all the time, puts on an incredible show. Um, great artist and, and very talented, very talented guy and his band. And we have an amazing lineup of music that you normally would end up paying a big ticket to go see or have to get into Summerfest to go see these acts. And they're all coming out to perform. And we're doing it absolutely free because they're passionate about the cause. We're passionate about the cause. We just want people to come out and celebrate life. We'll have all kinds of kids entertainment. There's a huge splash pad, kids jungle gyms, face painter, all kinds of family-friendly stuff that'll be out there. So we just encourage you to come out. It costs you nothing. But just come out, spend a day, enjoy some live music, some activities, and learn a little bit about the resources that are available in the community. Um, if there are any organizations out there um, that perhaps maybe want to share some of your literature, some of your materials, is it simply them just going onto your website or, or contacting you in order to, to sort of network and, and get these materials to them? Yeah, absolutely. We're more than happy to get anything to them that they'd want. Otherwise, if they go on the website, we have downloadable PDFs of a lot of the files and images that they can share across social media or the same on our Facebook. They can share any of our post events across social media. We post, um, you know, more often than than you would probably want to see from us on social media on Robert a, is a on pretty is consistent on basis. <laughs> so um, we have all that resource there. We highlight the artists, we highlight the activities, we highlight the partners that we work with and stuff like that. And if you want to, if you're an organization wants to come out and have attended the event, I mean, it's getting close to time, but you reach out to me and, and we can probably make something still work. So we want you to come out and have a voice too. We have a lot of our partners come out and tent these events and we have talk tents and things like that. Uh, you know, we're all about making those resources accessible. So we want you to come out. We want you to have a great time. Um, if you're a music instrument enthusiast, we have a very special gift this year. Um, uh, Willie from the band Trip out of Kenosha made us a custom cigar box a, a electric acoustic guitar that we're going to auction off at the festival. Awesome. And it is pretty sweet. He laser etched our logo, the band lineup on the back, put a ton of love and work and donated that to us so that we can auction off with with everything we get off of it going back into local resources. So if you want a unique one-of-a-kind instrument, come on out. You can bid for that as well. well. We'll have a lot of opportunity that you can get involved, give, or just come out and enjoy the experience. Um, I you know, Kenosha and Racine, Southeast Wisconsin, even there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talented bands and musicians. Um, and I know a lot of them personally, if any of them were interested in participating in the music fest, whether it's this year, it's probably too late for this year or, uh, in the coming years, is that something that you're looking for? Do you, are you looking for bands who are willing to, to play out at, at, at this festival? Yeah, absolutely. And we, and even if it's not this festival, you know, we try to do events within the communities as well. We had a golf outing where Trip actually came out and played for the golf outing afterwards. So, you know, we, you know, one of the unique things that I loved about um, when I came in Just Live was this connection to the arts and to music because, um, you know, artists have always been at the forefront of these conversations. It, it was the Bob Dylans, you know, that brought some of these social topics to the forefront. And it was an experience to get an album from your favorite artist and open it up and look at the album art or pull out the CD book and page through and read the lyrics and connect to them. Uh, it, it, music's always been a way for us to connect to those emotions and feelings and often start those dialogues where we couldn't have those publicly. And so... 
you know, we love having local artists out. We love connecting with these artists because a lot of times they're the ones that understand this as much as anyone else. And so if there's a way we can get you involved or have you at an event or do an event with you, we've had, we had a couple of Decembers ago, we had an, a local artist up in Milwaukee reach out and he put together an entire lineup of like five artists just to do a benefit concert on his album release for us at a local place. And, you know, we, we love that connection to the, to the artist community. We love their way of getting that messaging out there. And if we can work with you, we'll love to. Um, before we wrap up here, I, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, you know, when I asked about how do you guys have the time? And we've been chatting here for about two hours. Um, and, you know, I, I never put a time limit and say, oh, we're going to do 90 minutes or we're going to do 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, Robert, you're a dad. You could be at home on a Friday night with your kids um, and your loved ones. Um, Lily, you're a full-time student, um, you know, your former Miss Kenosha. Um, you could be doing lots of different things on a Friday evening, and you guys are here. Um, and I, I can't say thank you enough because, you know, as I said before, these are conversations that need to happen. And you guys don't get paid to do this. You know, there's not, um, there's, when I stop recording, it's not like there's an audience here to clap and tell you what a great job you did. This is a thankless thing that you're doing. And so, well, and so, um, uh, I, I can't thank you enough. And I hope that, you know, if, you know, like you said before, if even one person hears this conversation and it changes their mind about um, attempting suicide or it gets people to change the way that they approach um, the stigma, if it generates more conversations and more dialogue, then this was worth it. And um, not to sound patronizing, but I mean this really, Lily, um, there's a lot to be said. It's, it's become almost... Um, uh, part of the lexicon that people in your generation, the youngsters, um, don't do anything or they're, you know, lazy or they don't care about social issues. And let me tell you, um, if you look at the polls and politics, young people are getting involved more than, than they get credit for. But for you, um, who it's difficult enough to be a woman in this country and society, but you also ran for Miss Kenosha, which is incredibly difficult to do because you're thrust upon the world stage. And then to take an issue like this, mental health, and bring it to the forefront and talk about it and make it such an important issue. And then beyond your reign as Miss Kenosha, to continue to advocate and to bring the message out there and to get involved with an organization like this, I think speaks to um, perhaps the doubters and detractors out there that maybe the younger generation needs to get more credit and people need to look to the younger generation and say, hey, um, they care about these issues too. It's not just people who are in their 40s or, or the baby boomers or the middle-aged people. There are young folks out there who are out there um, grassroots and, and, and pounding the pavement and, and trying to do right by society. So I, I have to say, I give you all the credit in the world because um, it's, 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 uh, it's refreshing to see that despite what people say, that here you are um, proving them wrong. Thank you. I would say to add to that, because she's too modest to 
promoter self, but <laughs> would you please let everybody know what you're studying in college right now? Yes. <laughs> um, I'm a double major in psychology and counseling with an emphasis on childhood and adolescent studies and um, a minor in women and gender studies. I sound on paper. You guys are just gassing me up right now. <laughs> I'm very normal as well. There are, you know, what I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And, and again, this isn't, you know, I'm not trying to pander or, or patronize you, but I think it's it's it bears talking about that there are people out there who they're not waiting for a camera crew to show up so that they can you know you see a lot of politicians they they come to a town they go to a factory and they're you know they're not wearing a tie and their sleeves are rolled up and they got a hard hat on and and a and a um you know a neon vest because they're posing for a camera because it looks good on on news sites um but when the cameras go away, they leave in their limo and they go back to their home. Again, you guys are doing the dirt every single day. This is not an act. This is not a. Um, this is not a front. This is. This is. These are real people, um, doing real things and trying to change a very, very real problem in society. And so, like I said, you could be anywhere else right now on Friday night, and you're here having this conversation. And I think that speaks a lot to both of your characters. So. Um, I will say this again, um, anyone, anytime want to come on this podcast um, and talk about this or anything, you have an open-ended invitation. Um, you know, this isn't the Joe Rogan podcast that's being viewed by millions of people, but, um, you know, again, if even just one person, um, that's, that's what kindles hope, I suppose. That's what lights a fire, if just one person. Um, and... Just one more thing before we go, because um, I think this needs to be said. Um, if you or anyone you know is having a mental health crisis or is struggling emotionally um, or you have concerns about your mental health, there are ways to get help. And I assure you that I'm going to share all of the information and links to the Just Live page and everything else that I can on um, on social media and the page for this, uh, for this podcast. But if you're struggling, um, we mentioned it earlier, just a little bit. Um, there's a, um, great hotline, the 988 suicide and crisis hotline. Um, you can text them, you can call them. Um, you can, if you feel that you're in immediate danger or, um, someone, you know, is in immediate danger, call 911 or go to an emergency room. There's help out there. You're not alone. Um, reach out to someone. Have a conversation. Those of you out there, check on your friends. Check on your loved ones. Um, there's more to life than just burying your face in uh, a tablet or a smartphone or a TV. Um, have conversations with people. That's how we change things. So my thanks again to uh, Robert Stevens and Lily Carnes of Just Live. Um, I hope that this conversation is of benefit to anybody. But um, again, I will share all of the information on uh, Just Live uh, on my social media pages. And hopefully, if you have any questions, please reach out. Even if you need me to facilitate and point you in the right direction, it doesn't matter. Reach out, and I will make sure that the information gets in your hands. But again, thanks again, uh, Robert and Lily, for having this great conversation and um, taking the time to um, 
to, to talk to people and, and, and give some insight on this very, very real problem. I appreciate that. And um, before we go, yeah. I need to give you some kudos. And I, I hope anyone that's listening to this goes back and listens to your other podcast because I'm a fan. And um, I especially listened to the first few episodes and how open you are and the way that you communicate your own personal life and the things you've been through. Um, it means so much to people like us who we're all about that sharing experience and opening that dialogue. And so I just want to commend you for how open you've been through this entire process, through your podcasts and relating and the fact that you reached out and connected. And as you said at the top of it, you know, we've been trying to arrange this for like a year. You could have easily given up after a month, uh, but you didn't, you stuck with it. And, you know, it's because of people like you that are, that are giving us voice in these communities that it makes a real difference. Because again, this is just, no matter how many people listen to this, it, it, just one more person, if it affects one person and changes things for one person, then, then we've done our work. Um, I really appreciate that. And uh, admittedly, um, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because um, I realized that I have issues that I need to work out on my own. And one of the ways that, you know, I know that uh, I have a very particular brain. I have a divergent brain because I have ADHD. And so the, my thought process is, is very strange and my brain is calculating things at a million miles an hour. And I feel like even if nobody listens to this, um, whatever episodes, this helps me um, cope. This helps me um, get things out there because, you know, like I said, I, I do see someone for, for mental health stuff, but like, it's not like it's a everyday thing or a weekly thing. And sometimes you just need to get things off of your chest. And, you know, some people have journals, some people have diaries, um, some people blog. I, I started this podcast and, um, I really appreciate the, the really nice words because, um, while this is a hobby, it's really important to me and, and, and shedding light on organizations like this and people like you guys is really important because, um, you know, where there's such an emphasis on like national politics and the president. And I always say that people need to be focusing on the local things, um, because that's how we change things. That's how, you know, we live in these small towns, these cities, um, we need to worry about here and not about over there or out there. This is important here. And if you talk about it here, then it gets talked about everywhere eventually. So again, um, Robert and Lily, I, I can't thank you enough. And, and thank you so much for, um, for having this conversation. And again, I will um, get this uploaded as soon as possible and share all of the information regarding Just Live. Um, their website, justliveinc.org, uh, and um, any links regarding um, the music festival and um, the resources that they offer. So uh, thanks to everyone listening out there. Have a great weekend.